Good morning. So the first reading is from Isaiah, chapter 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of the dry ground. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned to a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and he will and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge of my right servant and will justify many, and he will bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and many intercessions for the transgressors. And the second reading is Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with his sons, kneeling down, asking a favor. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may, be sit, may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they had been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, 
and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciple were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want from me, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask please that it would work in our hearts. Uh, teach and train, correct and rebuke us. Uh, show us Christ, take away our blindness, that we might see our need of him and we might know how we are to follow him. Help us please to take up our cross and honor him day by day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, who will these verses help? Probably good just to uh, flag up at the start that I think these verses will be a great help for anybody that's looking in, uh, maybe for the first time here this morning, uh, wanting to find out more about uh, Christianity and uh, the claims of Jesus, who he is, and uh, why he matters, why we all need him, uh, what we need to know about the Christian life and, and considering to follow him. Um, it should also help those of us who would say we've already made a start with Jesus, um, but currently facing hard things perhaps because of our Christian faith. We've started to taste suffering in the form of opposition or what we might call persecution. And we're wondering, is it worth it? Starting to feel what is described in the Bible as the cost of discipleship can happen in many different places and maybe it will cause us to feel like giving up. Um, as we've been in Matthew recently, we've heard some of these calls and these themes coming up. And we might be wondering this morning, how can I keep going? How can I do this? What does it have to do and how can I keep doing it? We need some reminders before we get into the verses that we uh, were read a moment ago. Um, previous verses before uh, chapter 20. We're with Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. There are the 12 disciples, the 12 that he called from the start to be with him. And then there's other disciples who have started to follow him as well. And then there's a large crowd looking in um, with different ideas and different thoughts and probably some anticipation because of all the amazing things that Jesus has been done. Uh, they're wondering what will happen when he arrives in Jerusalem. He seems to fit the bill as the promised king that God said he would send. 
Um, to the followers, if you just flick back, um, let's go back one page, um, chapter 19 and verse 28, Jesus said to his followers, to the disciples who had just said, we've given up everything to follow you. Jesus said to them, verse 28, truly I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So Jesus here promises that for those who give up everything to follow him, great things await in the future. But Jesus has also stressed already um, that there will be a cost to following him. Flip back another couple of pages to chapter 16. And uh, on the right-hand side of chapter 16, in my Bible, it's 983. Uh, if you pick up a Bible in the pew, you'll be able to find that. 983, Matthew 16. Jesus tells his disciples what he must do. It's got the little heading there in the right-hand column. Jesus predicts his death. That's what lies ahead when he gets to Jerusalem. He's told them that twice already. But he also tells them what they must do. Just following that, chapter 16, um, just uh, bottom of, chapter, of page, that page, verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So Jesus says to the disciple, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die there, I'm going to suffer there, and whoever follows me must be ready to deny themselves and take up their cross. So Jesus lays down a pattern there for followers, which is suffering and death, then life. He says that is going to be his pattern, and now that will be a pattern for those who follow. So as we turn back, come back to chapter 20, now for the third time Jesus predicts his death. And the point here that I want us to see first of all is that his death is not an accident. His death is not an accident. Um, look at me with, uh, with me at verse 17 to 19. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. 
Jesus takes the phrase, the Son of Man, as his preferred title for referring to himself. The Son of Man is a phrase that comes from the Old Testament. Here's how the Son of Man is described in Daniel. Daniel sees a vision at night, and he looks, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man in the Bible is the greatest ruler there can ever be. And that's the title that Jesus takes for Himself. And that would explain hype and anticipation. As people have heard Jesus talk about Himself being the Son of Man, and now they wonder what will happen when He comes to Jerusalem, God's city. Would it mean the start of a new reign, the coming of the kingdom? But here in these verses, Jesus is very clear. God's King is on the way to the cross. He says that He will be crucified. Now, He said to His followers, take up your cross, and now He's saying that He must take up His cross. He's going to take up His cross. And in this moment, He shows us what kind of ruler the greatest ruler is. The historians tell us that during World War I, as the soldiers were preparing to fight in the trenches, often the officers would be the first that would go into battle leading the troops over the top of the trenches into no man's land to face the enemy and to face death. That often it would be the officers who would be first to die. And in that sense, those officers were leaders, servant leaders. And that is what kind of leader Jesus is. He is going to Jerusalem where He will suffer and die. I want us just to pause for a moment and just to see some applications for us for life today. Is it not a great comfort to those of us who are in the midst of suffering to know that Jesus knows what it is like to suffer? He is not a leader or a king that is detached from the realities of this world, the things we taste in our lives. What good is a Messiah who hasn't suffered? He is a Messiah who suffered and can comfort those who are suffering now. He offers comfort and hope. His death looks like defeat. 
but it ends in victory. Did you spot that detail at the end of verse 9? On the third day, he will be raised to life. It's looking forward to the first Easter morning. Jesus is going to defeat death. Victory over the grave. For all who trust in Him, they will have this life. What a victory. But it looks here like defeat. Someone could explain His death as a terrible tragedy and accident, but Jesus and Matthew doesn't want to miss this, to know that His death was no accident. It was according to God's plan. We still don't know why at this stage. We'll get to that in the rest of the verses. But here His death looks like defeat, but actually it's showing us that God is still in charge. In our suffering, the cross, where Jesus, the perfect Son of God, bravely and obediently trusts His Father unto death, can bring you and I encouragement when followers like us are suffering, that we can trust God in our suffering, that our Heavenly Father is still in charge. What comes next shows us something about even the closest of His followers. As we move into this middle section, we see that even the closest of His followers, of the twelve, they just don't get what's going on. They are completely blind to what's going on. I uh, have tasted one type of blindness in my life, physical blindness. I uh, am colorblind, okay? So, I remember clearly going along in the car during the summer holidays and uh, driving through a uh, part of Scotland where there was beautiful fields full of poppies. And my mum and dad would be remarking again and again and again, look at those poppies. And I was in the back seat looking out going, what poppies? Red, green, color blindness. Everybody else enjoying the moment, and I was just completely lost. What are you talking about? All those poppies. What poppies? The red poppies. Can't see any poppies. All I see is grass. This has been a great challenge at different points in my life, particularly when it comes to dress sense. That has always been a team effort. I know it's a team effort for lots of men, but it has particularly been a team effort for moi. Okay, growing up with mum, uh, and now, wonderfully, with Hannah, and uh, probably my children as well. Here, it is uh, almost comical the blindness, if it wasn't so serious. He's talking about the cross, and we have the mother of James and John sidling up, bowing down, and asking about places for her sons 
at the after party. Verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and at the other at your left in your kingdom. Here is a mother with laser focus, or is it all mothers have laser focus like this? On behalf of her boys, who are probably just hiding behind her, it's all so relatable and human. Even when the other disciples get indignant when they've heard what's happened, they're probably in one hand saying, I can't believe you just said that, and under the breath saying, why didn't we think of that? She may not have been beside Jesus when Jesus told the twelve in the first few verses what was going to happen, but her sons should have known and did hear, and it highlights that they just don't get it. They are spiritually blind. We read this, and if we've been over it before in any depth, we are tempted to think of them idiots. But before we rush to say this, we need to understand that this is recorded to help us see where we'll make the same mistake, where we will have the wrong ideas like them. It's there to help us to see what we need to get our heads around to do with discipleship, and, and need I say what we need to get our hearts around. When it comes to following Jesus. Notice their ignorance, first of all. Verse 22, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. The cup that Jesus talks about there is another Old Testament reference to God's judgment, His future judgment poured out one day on all people who oppose Him, who do not bow the knee to Him and to His King. They claim that they can do this, but as we read on in Matthew, we actually find that in the moment that Jesus is arrested to go to the cross, all His followers do what? They abandon Him. But notice what Jesus says will happen to them, verse 23. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. These places can't be earned. These places are given. But James and John are being told that because of their association to Jesus, because they are followers with Jesus, they will suffer. And that's what happened. James was the first disciple to lose his life. John was imprisoned probably until he died, all because of their faith. Discipleship means taking up a cross, and it means being called to suffer. Specifically, what that might look 
for us as disciples, it could be opposition, hatred, persecution, mocking from our nearest and dearest, maybe even family members, from classmates as we try to be a Christian at school, from colleagues at work, just because we follow Jesus. We call ourselves a Christian. Not because we've done stupid things, and we we do do stupid things as Christians, and bring trouble upon ourselves, because we don't always act wisely. But this is suffering for trying to be faithful as a follower. Just being a faithful follower will bring suffering. Paul writes later, all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. We live in a culture which is thoroughly confused about everything. But if we claim to speak with clarity about something, it's the worst sin, and we will be hated. And if we say we believe the Bible, and we're doing it because of the Bible, we will be hated and cast to the side. I wonder if we already know something of this. I wonder if we think we can avoid this. Naturally, I shy away from this. The thought is to keep my head down and to stay quiet about Jesus. But Jesus tells His disciples so they are prepared for what lies ahead. He tells us this morning so that we are prepared that this is part of the cost of following Jesus. The Bible says expect it. Don't be surprised. And don't think that it's because you've done something wrong as a Christian. We have to look to Jesus for help to keep going when suffering, persecution comes. The verses, though, tell us about something else, about taking up our cross. They say taking up our cross is a call to suffering, but also taking up our cross is a call to serve others. Verse 24, when Well, we've read that. Let's go to verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus here nails James and John's ambition. Again, we're tempted to think, you idiots, haven't you been listening? He's been talking about humility. But we have these verses to see what so quickly we will forget what we as followers will find hard day by day. Jesus has been saying that greatness in the kingdom is about humility, and now He says greatness is humble service. It's not what the world celebrates round about us. It's not the type of leadership 
that we see where leaders want to lord it over others. It's leadership that serves. I wonder where we might be tempted to um, close our ears and be blind to this call, where we, we are tempted to lord it over others at home or in the workplace, in, in our marriages, with our family, with our children, and in our church family here at St. John's. In the way that we speak to others with a tone or an attitude, where we perhaps take an attitude and a mindset that is the opposite of this, quick to take the opportunity to lord it over others. What would change if we acted more like Jesus in these relationships? The thing is that I find that serving others is hard. It's almost harder than, than facing suffering and persecution because others, others are not perfect. You, you know this. Serving others who are not perfect is hard, and, and, and it's hard because we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Serving means losing our comfort, and we love our comfort. It's one of my idols, being comfortable, having some rest, my space, my time. These are the things I want day by day. And, and, and because we like to stand on our rights, what we think we deserve, what we think we've earned. But it's part of the cost. It will be costly for us. It will eat into our time, our wallets, our energy to lay down our lives for one another. That is what Jesus is calling His followers to do, to be like Him in these two ways, to face suffering and to serve now. And, and to know that there is no shortcuts to the after party. We don't just get a ticket in. This is life now for disciples. For Jesus, what was the pattern? Death, then life. We headed out as a family to the heath yesterday with three small children. A walk of any distance is pretty hard going for me and for them. Together, it's almost a nightmare. But the sun was out, and so onto the heath we headed with the promise of a treat at Kenwood. That whole incentive of we will get there and we will have a treat. It will be a snack or it will be a drink, but not both. <laughs> The treat, uh, like some hill walks, it's, you know, it's lunch at the top. Do you know what? On the heath yesterday, it was full muddy jacket. There was no path and no shortcut without mud. And there I was just thinking, it is, this is life. You cannot escape. 
hard things. And the call of discipleship is, is there's no shortcuts. Followers joined to Jesus now, it's the same pattern. Association with Him means taking up our cross for the journey. This is a call to be like Jesus. The one who is described in verse 28. Do you see this, how wonderful this is? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. It's a call to be like Jesus, but they then, and you and I now, need to understand that Jesus was the perfect uh, servant of God, the one we read about in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 53, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, the one who bore the sins of many. Go back to Isaiah this afternoon and read through those 14 or so verses, and it finishes saying, He bore the sins of many. That is why Jesus went to the cross, to save sinners like you and I. And only He, the perfect Son, could do that, the suffering servant of Isaiah. Only Jesus could suffer for His people as a ransom for many, to set many free. This is what Jesus has done to guarantee life for His people. What saves us is not how well we take up our cross, but that Jesus hung on His cross. He is the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. For would-be disciples, for those who are already following, already suffering, and already serving, weary, discouraged, hurting, these are going to be lifelong lessons to keep learning. Because uh, that is a pattern of discipleship. And we don't graduate out of it. Wonderfully, we finish with two blind men receiving their sight. Verse 29, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Often in the Bible, physical blindness is a picture of spiritual blindness. In what happens now, it is telling us something about Jesus. It's telling us that He is the Messiah, the promised one, God's King, who will give sight to the blind. 
But we are blind spiritually if we're not yet trusting in Jesus. And if we are trusting in Jesus, in some way we still tend towards blindness to what discipleship means. This ending is so simple. When they hear the news about Jesus, they cry to Him for one thing, mercy. They cry for mercy. It's another request. It's very different from the first request in these verses. When Mrs. Zebedee came with her sons, thinking, as we often do, that we deserve something, that we can earn what we need to do, that we can be worthy of a place in Jesus' kingdom. But here, this is the starting point for all of us. We need mercy from the King. His undeserved kindness. And this King, the Son of Man King, the great and powerful ruler, He stops to help the most needy. Verse 32, Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed Him. This is a request that Jesus always, always grants to those who look to Him for mercy. And it's the way forward because Jesus is full of, what does it say? Compassion. The King who serves others, that's why He's going to the cross. He's full of compassion and He has compassion for all who come to Him. This is how their journey began. He opened their eyes and they followed Him. They received their sight and followed Him. Here is the pattern of discipleship. One, know that you are blind. Two, receive sight from Jesus. And three, follow Him for the rest of your life. It's how we start by coming to Jesus for mercy. And friends, it's how we continue with our tendency to blindness about discipleship. We will fail and fall, but will you come to Him this morning for mercy? I'm going to take a moment to pause and a moment to pray, and I'm going to suggest two short prayers. Um, so, the person here uh, who's never seen who Jesus is, you could pray that you would be helped to see Jesus, to trust in His death, to take up your cross, that you'd be able to see and follow Him. The person already trying to do that, that we can pray confidently for His help to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus today. Why don't you make one of those prayers your own? We'll take a moment of silence for people to respond 
and then I'll say a brief prayer, a moment to reflect and pray. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes immediately. They received their sight and followed him. Father, please would you help us to go home with sight that uh, because of your great mercy, the mercy of Jesus, as we see it here, opening our blind eyes so that we might know what it means to follow him, that he is worthy of our all, and that he will help us in life, even with the suffering that comes and the serving, that we can look to him day by day for mercy and compassion, how we need this. Um, please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.